joined in with us, James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who've believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Let's turn to the Lord. Father, we're not always aware of the intended effect uh, 
that your word is to have on us. But Lord, this is a gathering that is designed to accomplish something in us. Lord, it is is designed to strengthen our faith and affection for you. So Lord, would that be our experience? Would we find our hearts opened wide to receive once again our Savior and his truth that we might live faithfully for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new to our program, we've been studying the book of Acts now since 2012, which is actually pretty good for us. You'll soon realize that things move at a glacial pace around here. But if you weren't around then or can't remember, we began this series under the heading, A New Normal. We're seeking to allow this book to present to us what normal Christianity is supposed to look like. And, and sometimes we learn that from events in the church that occurred, or, or sometimes from times of teaching that are recorded for us here. But we're also instructed by the portraits of particular individuals that are presented. And I think we get a picture in this text of what it looks like for someone to be compelled by the call of the gospel, for that to dictate every decision and response. Which is really just another way of saying we we have illustrated for us what normal Christianity is supposed to look like through the Apostle Paul. You know, our typical focus when reading scripture isn't primarily on biblical characters. You know, here's just a, a basic principle of interpretation. The main thing that we should take away from the text is generally not how good or bad somebody was, whether they were a winner or a loser, how we can imitate their success or failure. That's not the main point. But the focus is on God and what he's accomplishing in his work of redemption. That's what we're supposed to see. And our covenant group leaders this summer studied through Mike Imlet's book, Crosstalk, and he puts it like this. He says, the Bible is a story of God that goes somewhere. The characters within its pages play a supporting role to the God who engineers history and then authors the telling of it. The end point is not to imitate David, Hannah, or Paul per se, but to relate intimately to the God of David, Hannah, and Paul, who orchestrates history to accomplish his redemptive purposes. The characters are signposts to the pursuing redemptive love of God. And that's an important point. But at the same time, we shouldn't neglect taking notice of how people were affected by the Lord if Scripture intends for us to see that. And I think there are some things here that Luke wants us to learn from Paul's example. I don't know about you, but but I find the Apostle Paul to be so stirring in this text. What at first glance looks like a travel log combined with a series of unfortunate events. On closer inspection, we're afforded a glimpse into some Pauline priorities. And they have everything to do with the gospel's expression in the church. What motivated Paul? What drove him to face threatening circumstances in Jerusalem and and then, as we'll see in a moment, encouraged him to continue even after his own ministry partners have seemingly punched him in the gut? 
It's because there was always something on his mind. He had a persistent awareness of the call and claim of Jesus on his life. Paul would later describe this to the Philippians as he sat in a prison cell in Rome awaiting his death sentence. And he summarized it like this. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's the Paul with that perspective that we see here. Ken Hughes talks about the time when Lou Little was head football coach at Georgetown University and and he had an average player who rarely got into the game, but, but Coach Little was fond of this student and he would notice the way that he would walk arm in arm with his father on campus. Well, shortly before a big game, the, the boy got a phone call letting him know that his dad had died of a heart attack. And he came to Coach Little and, and asked him to, to put him in the game that weekend because he thought that would be what his dad would want. The coach hesitated a little bit, but then agreed to, to put him in for a play or two. Well, come game day, he put him in the game, but never took him out for 60 minutes. He ran and blocked and played the best game of his life. And afterward, the coach came up to him and asked, well, what got into you, man? You were awesome out there. And he said, well, remember the way that my father and I would walk arm in arm? Well, he was totally blind. And today was the first day he ever saw me play. He was compelled by the desire to please someone he loved, someone who saw him even though he wasn't visibly present. And in this next episode of Paul's life, I think we we just get another instance of this ambition to serve the risen Lord and represent the gospel in whatever he does. We see it in three things. Paul's eagerness to display gospel unity Verse 17 through 20, Paul's willingness to embrace gospel sacrifices in verse 20 through 26. And Paul's readiness to proclaim gospel truth, verse 27 through 40. First, Paul's eagerness to display gospel unity. Our, Our text begins with Paul arriving in Jerusalem. He's been eager to get there, hoping in particular to make it in time for Passover when over two million Jews would be gathered in the city. And as Pastor Peter shared with us last week, this is despite reports from his friends and even warnings from the Holy Spirit that what awaits him when he gets there is not pretty. And earlier in in this chapter, Agabus goes theatric and presents this prophecy drama, tying himself up with Paul's belt and and warning him that the Holy Spirit says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this piece of clothing if he enters the city. They're trying to get it into Paul's head. This is a bad idea. But he's unpersuaded. And And there's something reminiscent about this scene. The book of Acts is actually the the second volume in a series written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. I think there's something that Luke wants us to recognize in Paul here. In Luke's Gospel, there's a turning point, and it's in Matthew's and Mark's as well, where, where Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, and that when he gets there, they're going to arrest him and beat him and kill him. 
And the disciples begin to bring their objections. Certainly this wouldn't be God's plan for his Messiah. But then Luke says in chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I think Luke wants us to see Paul's similarity to his Lord here, that there's a a familiar expression on his face, a similar resolution in his voice. Why does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Well, in our text, he's bringing his report of his ministry among the Gentiles, but there's something else that isn't actually mentioned in this chapter. But, But later, Paul states in chapter 24, verse 17, he says, After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. You see, one of the primary reasons Paul's determined to come to this city is because he wants to bring the offering that's been collected for the Jerusalem church. As Pastor Peter mentioned, that this is the same offering that was begun to be collected in, in chapter 11 because of the coming famine in Jerusalem. And it seems to be something that's grown in significance over time. This offering is mentioned in the book of Acts, in Romans, in First and Second Corinthians. It's even hinted at in Galatians. It was dear to Paul. Why? Well, because it represented Gentile Christians sacrificially giving to serve their Jewish brothers. Here's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor. It's just so amazingly stated. The favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, of the Jewish saints. And this is a remarkable statement of the power of the gospel to unite the most different people. As Pastor Keith shared with us a couple weeks ago, there was nothing more divergent in the first century than this Jew-Gentile distinction. It was connected to race and religion and politics. Those aren't touchy subjects, are they? It was like these two groups operated in separate social and conceptual worlds. And the tension was thick. Let me take a risk and offer this illustration. What comes to mind when you hear about Michael Brown and Ferguson, Missouri? Some of us may not have any particular thoughts about it. Others have strong opinions that you've probably shared on social media. I came across an interesting statistic that there were over one million tweets posted about Ferguson before there was one minute of news coverage on CNN. It's the day we live in today. 
But when you hear news like this, you most likely have a default setting that causes you to react in a certain way. You have a category that, it's like it serves as a box in your mind with a pre-existing label that you put these events in. You may locate it in a narrative of racial profiling, of a pattern of injustice, of abuse, of police power, of a, of a system of white authority that preys on black teenagers and men. Or maybe for you, it, it fits some sort of storyline of these events being taken advantage of by the media to support an underlying ideology without having all the facts. My intention, by the way, isn't to comment on the situation in Ferguson, heartbreaking as it is, but just to illustrate that you look at things through a certain lens, but it's not one that everybody shares. And maybe just by my describing the other perspective, it makes you upset. But your political party or the color of your skin probably influences how you see these things. And in this day, one of the most opposing perspectives was between Jew and Gentile. It was everything I just described and more. The Gentile world looked upon the Jews as intolerant freaks engaging in these secretive and exclusive religious practices. There was literally a wall separating the inner court of the temple with a notice that was posted in Latin and Greek that said any foreigners coming past this point would have themselves to blame for their immediate death. To the Jews, the Gentiles represented all kinds of idolatrous pursuits and sinful sexual expressions. They referred to them as dogs and considered them unclean. And there was also this dimension that the Gentiles symbolized the oppressive, uncircumcised rulers who have intruded in on Israel's land. And at A.D. 57, where we are in Acts right now, that there were these rising nationalistic movements in Jerusalem that were murdering Jews who were suspected of collaborating with Gentiles. And it's in this cultural setting of of racial and political unrest that Paul walks into Jerusalem carrying an offering for the church gathered from the Gentile cities across the map of his journeys. Paul loved this offering. He took responsibility for it as the missionary to the Gentiles. And and here he is putting his life on the line to make sure that it gets delivered. And please know, this was not mere sentimentality on Paul's part, just a celebration of diversity for its own sake or warm feelings about the concept of different people coming together. This unity was making a statement about the gospel. That's how he puts it in Ephesians 2 verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities, referring to that wall in the temple by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the hostility between Jew and Gentile, black and white, and every opposing group has been killed in the cross. It died in the death of Jesus that a new way might come alive in his resurrection. And Paul is eager to put on display this gospel unity. And yet we know from his letters that he has some concern about this offering's reception. He writes in the book of Romans in chapter 15, verse 25. He says, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. And then verse 30. I appeal to you brothers. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit. To strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. What's the implication there? They might not receive it. He's concerned that they're going to turn it away. Can you imagine this? We don't receive charity from those types. These are the kind of Tensions that were present in the first century church. And by the way, let's not have some sort of glory days mentality when it comes to the early church that leaves us disillusioned with the warts in the church today. Church has always had warts. And yet, this is the church that Paul was willing to die for. The same church that Jesus had given his life to redeem and unite. Often we're not willing to be put in situations of discomfort or inconvenience for her. Derek Thomas says, Paul was prepared to die for the church. It takes my breath away to think about it. Is the church that important to us? What kind of sacrifices are we prepared to make for the church? Would we sacrifice a job, an income, just so that the church of Jesus Christ would come first? The answer spells for itself the level of importance we give the church for which Jesus Christ shed his blood. It also perhaps spells how far removed we are from that which gripped the apostle. Well, we continue to see what gripped this apostle in our next point. Paul's willingness to embrace gospel sacrifices. So Paul arrives to bring this offering and present his ministry report and he gathers together with some believers that he knows in Jerusalem and then the next day he has a meeting with with James and some of the elders there to present the provision that has been collected for them. Now now remember we're in the first century here so Paul did not deliver this offering by electronic transfer. He literally had sacks of coins 
probably sitting in the middle of the room at this meeting. And yet the narrative passes over that without comment and moves to rumors that have been spreading about Paul. Verse 20, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. It's such a quick transition. Matter-of-factly stated. Can you feel this moment? How the air must have been let out of the room? Paul, thanks for the help, man, but your reputation is in shambles. Here's the misinformation and the slander that's been spread about you. Something needs to be done about this. Maybe you've experienced something like this before. Ever had that feeling of getting your ears boxed, the disorientation that comes when you discover what's been said about you? That people are not what you thought? Just the discouragement, the the punch in the gut that can begin to set in. Here's something to consider. What happens when you find out that people have unfavorable opinions about you? How do you handle that? Does it make you want to hide? Start to look for a new church or a new group of friends. Begin to posture yourself, rearrange your social media presence. We can imagine how Paul might have felt here, which I think makes his response remarkable. By the way, apparently church leaders have always had to face a measure of suspicion and bad press about them. But this is heightened in the digital age, isn't it? You know, in the world of of blogs and Twitter, we're invited to form opinions about situations that really have nothing to do with us. And and guys, I, I, I do this myself, but, you know, we're invited through the Internet to know dirt on pastors that live a thousand miles away. Or at least we know the reports from certain perspectives. I think the golden rule should come into play when we interact with information like this. What are the specific charges that Paul faces here? The the claim is coming from Jews that are described as being zealous for the law. And they're accusing Paul of teaching people to forsake Moses. And the word for forsake here is, is actually the word for apostasy. They're saying Paul urges people to abandon God's law. It's a serious accusation. But what exactly did Paul teach about the law? Well, let's do a crash course from his letters. You'll see a little box in your outline there. What did he teach? Well, Paul did not do away with the law as a moral code needing to be obeyed. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then he adds this clarification, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So he sees himself as still 
under the law's moral obligations. And so he says in 1 Timothy 1.8, and we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, then what's the problem? Well, he rejected the thought that the law could be a means of attaining righteousness before God in justification. That's what he would describe as the unlawful use of the law. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That would be a misuse of the law to set it up as a staircase to get to God or some set of standards that we can attain in order to be righteous before him. The law only steps in and condemns us, which is why we need somebody else's obedience to it in our place by faith. He also recognized that there were ceremonial components to the law that served as temporary shadows pointing to Christ and that these shadow elements were not to be enforced on the Gentiles as either a means of being saved or as moral requirements before God. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's just listing all the ceremony components of the law here. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. They, they were like if, if light is cast upon Christ, there's a shadow running throughout the Old Testament indicating the one who is to come and fulfill all of these things. But they had a temporary function in God's work of redemption. On the other hand, he saw believing Jews as having the freedom to participate in the festivals and ceremonies as long as they were not polluting the gospel with them. So these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were zealous for the law, but evidently in a way that Paul would elsewhere describe as having zeal without knowledge. So James and the elders at Jerusalem have come up with a plan. Verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. And Paul would undergo a seven-day ritual of purification and pay for three animal offerings for each of the four men as well as grain and drink offerings. And apparently, without objection, Paul agrees. Paul had taken a vow previously in Acts chapter 18 and he's, he's not going against his convictions or any of the principles that he's presented in places like 1 Corinthians 9. And yet he's not doing this without sacrifice. In fact, he describes it in 1 Corinthians 9 as a sacrifice of his freedoms. He puts it like this, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself 
a servant or a slave, you could render that, to all, that I might win more of them. As F.F. Bruce says, a truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. For Paul, the first priority was not maintaining his rights or resisting people's attempts to burden him. Some of us play the freedom card left and right, and yet we've never played the servant card. It's like we're not even aware that it's in the deck. We know everything about what the Bible permits us to do, and we have tiger-like reflexes when someone tries to hold us to a standard that isn't technically required. And don't put that on me, man. Where's the chapter and verse that says I need to do that? But Paul had a weightier priority than his own comfort or personal liberty. It was the call of the gospel. He says, 1 Corinthians 9, 12, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's what gripped him. And no sacrifice was too great a price to pay. Now, Paul was free to do this, and he had the right motives, but we we may wonder, was this wise? Was this the right choice? Should he have done it at this time in his ministry? We know it didn't turn out great for him, right? And, And there was probably weakness in James to ask this of Paul. And there may have been weakness in Paul to go along with it without expressing any concerns. But he was a man who was driven by a singular impulse. Ken Hughes has an interesting way of putting it. He says, we need, like Paul, to have hearts that because of a passion for souls and for God's glory are willing to run the, the risk of unwise decisions. That's interesting. Some hearts never risk anything. They strive neither for sin nor for sainthood. They desire a temperate zone free from the storms of sin and from the tempests that accompany a life of service. Never burn for the souls of others and you will avoid rejection. Never suggest a plan to reach the community or the world and you will never be criticized for it. Never give counsel to someone undergoing the pain of separation or divorce, and you will never give errant advice. But just think of all the heavenly checks you will never cash for yourself or others. You're willing to take the risk of not getting everything right. The risk of of uncertainty, of, of not knowing if everything's going to turn out okay. Before you commit, before you agree, what's it going to be? How's it going to turn out? You don't know, but go. If it means Christ is seen and proclaimed, there is an appropriate riskiness to this apostle. He says in Romans 9 that he was willing to be damned to hell for his brothers. That's a little over the top, isn't it? (laughs) It is, and rightfully so. And this informs our final point, Paul's readiness to proclaim gospel truth. Verse 27, 
When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The the scene is, is very similar, even the things that are said about Paul here, to what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And so a mob gathers together and pulls Paul out of the temple in order to kill him. They're going to execute him right on the spot. And Luke presents a a picture of total chaos here. The, The area is in such an uproar that two centurions, probably with about 200 soldiers, rush onto the scene. The tribune arrests Paul, perhaps to save his life, and binds him with chains while he can figure out what's going on. But there's, there's so much commotion and noise and conflicting reports that he needs to take him away to the barracks. And as Paul is being removed, the crowd shouts, as they did with Jesus, away with him. And in the midst of all the confusion, it seems that no one really knows who Paul is. The historian Paul Baller tells of an interesting occasion when Thomas Jefferson tried to to check into a room at a Baltimore hotel. But he was wearing his work clothes, which were splattered in in dirt, kind of like how Pastor Peter looks on his off day, by the way. (laughs) And then the clerk kind of looked him up and down and said, "Uh, we have we have no room for you here, sir. And he repeated his request and was denied again. So he left and called for his horse and went and found another hotel. But shortly after, a friend of the owner came and and, and let them know, hey, the, the person who just left, that was Thomas Jefferson, the vice president of the United States. He thought he was dealing with a dirty farmer. And I find it interesting that in this text, Paul is subjected to three cases of mistaken identity and false assumptions. In verse 21, he's taken to be someone teaching Jews to abandon the law. In verse 28, he's taken to be a man who brought a Greek into the temple. And then just to layer on the irony, in verse 38, he's taken to be an Egyptian who led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. They just can't get it right. But Paul knows who he is. He's the one whom Jesus called to proclaim his name. He's the one whom the risen Lord had said, you will testify about me as you suffer for my sake. And so that determines what he does next. Verse 39 Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. He wants to address them. He's just been terribly beaten. At this point, I think I just want to go home. But here Paul is, chained like a criminal 
with bruises on his face. And I can imagine a pounding headache. And he has good news to tell. He talks to them in their own language and addresses them as brothers and fathers. And in the next chapter, he goes to tell them about his encounter with Christ. There's a beautiful simplicity to this. If if only he could just tell them about Jesus. If only he could have one more opportunity to declare to them their Messiah, if he could just plant him in the hearts of his hearers. Delroth Davis mentions the Ethiopian missionary named Adaro who brought Christianity to the tribes in the region of Gopha. And people were beginning to respond to the gospel, but it was starting to have an effect on the structures of society. Converts were no longer uh, going to see witch doctors or paying taxes to the priests or giving the government money for favors. So a police lieutenant arrested Adaro and he, he chained his wrists together and clamped his feet so that he had to just kind of hop along and couldn't walk. And then he paraded him throughout the whole town and said, let everybody know this is what happens to any follower of the new religion. And they told Adaro, now take your Jesus thing and go back where you came from. And Adaro hopped toward him and replied, I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in Gopha. He is planted in the hearts and the souls of the Gopha people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. I think that's the posture Paul has in this chapter. I can go. Jesus will stay. For Paul, the call and claim of Christ was more fundamental than any ethnic distinction, more precious than any personal freedom, and more important than his own comfort and safety. Like Lou Little's football player, he was compelled by a desire to please someone not visibly present. What about you? What are you living for? What animates you? What informs the decisions that you make? What you're willing to commit to or feel like you need to turn down? What do you stay up late at night thinking about? What gets your mental attention and concern? Is it only about the stuff here and now? Your dream job or house or car or family? Or are you planning? How can the good news of Jesus shine through me? How can he be seen? How can he be made known? How can the Lord use me to proclaim this no matter what the cost Because for me, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.
I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought 